0: I um, was hoping to catch some of the parents, kids, before they headed out. That's all right. I want you to hear this. Um, Philippians chapter 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So I just sat there and listened to Therese lead us in worship, and we talk about worship, and there's this song that uh, Worthy is the Lamb. And Kim Kennedy uh, had her hands singing and praising God. And I looked over to my right, and my mom has her hands up, and she's singing and praising God. And Brenda is holding Lily like this, and Lily's facing us, and Lily's hands went up like this. I'm trying not to get emotional here, but you parents have to understand who you're surrounding your kids with is who they will become. So Kim, thank you for worshiping. Mom, thank you for worshiping the way you do. It's so essential and so important to surround our children with people that fear God. And they're witnessing that and watching that. So when you want like, ah, we'll come to church maybe, <sighs> guys, this is such a big deal for them to see it weekly, to see their children and see their parents praising. So it's not a matter of anything else other than just bowing your knee to the King, because every knee will bow. All right, I just had to say that because it was fresh on my heart, and it was really cool to see Lily not know what she was doing, but maybe she did. Maybe God has ordained praise through infants, but. Maybe she did know what she was doing. All right. Let's ask, uh, who's the youngest one in this room here? Who's less than seven? That was close, How old are you? You're seven? Oh, look, smart. Who's less than seven? He went, oh, I'm not less than seven. This one's easy. I'm not going to give you. No, I'll give you this one. It's easy. What is that? A fireman. Can everybody see the picture? It's a fireman. Okay. What's that? A guy hunting? How can you tell? You can see his hands and his skin. Why do you assume he's a hunter? He's in camo and he's got a backpack on. Everybody see the picture? Okay, keep that in mind. We've got firemen. We have a hunter. Okay? And they determine that. How did you determine he was a fireman? Does your dad wear it around the house sometimes still? Does he? He puts it on, runs around. By the clothes, you could tell he's a fireman, right? Okay. Uh, last week I preached on this idea. Um, that was the about the blessings that are found in Christ, this location in Christ. That was the sermon uh, last week. And using as an example, Ephesians chapter 1, so we can do a quick summary. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, in Him, in Christ, we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So it's talking about this location of human beings, of the church being in Him, in Christ. And, and we talked about, I don't know, how many verses did I hand you, Lee? There was maybe a hundred verses or something of, of in Him or in Christ passages from my notes. And at the end of the sermon, I made a statement that caused a few responses and warranted a few conversations throughout the week and some phone calls and text messages and and actually a study I'm going to have today, and it was in regards to the statement that um, being in Christ, uh, there was a correlation to baptism. So there's a correlation between baptism and being in Christ. And I mentioned that there's a bunch of verses, a bunch of verses that talk about the blessings of being in Christ, and there's only a few verses that talk about How we get in Christ. And the two passages that I used was Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6 verse 3 I believe it says, it says, uh, I don't want to misquote it. It says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. They were baptized into Christ Jesus and they were baptized into his death. And Galatians 3 says, uh, 26 and 27, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So it would be natural for one to assume that in order to receive these awesome blessings that we went over last week, the hundreds of verses or the 20 verses that we read last week, it would be, I think it would be okay to assume that when somebody is baptized into Christ, they receive those blessings. Now, I know there are more than the 44 words in those Three verses that I just mentioned. Romans 6, 3, Galatians 3, 26, and 27 is 44 words. I recognize that in the New Testament there's over 622,000 words. There are over 23,214 verses, apparently, in the New Testament. Quick Google search will tell you. Let's just say over 23,000 verses in the New Testament and over 622,000 words. And all I've done is look at three verses and 44 words. So I recognize that there's a lot more information. Uh, out there. I recognize that the Bible speaks of law, it speaks of salvation, it speaks of redemption, it speaks of grace, it speaks of forgiveness, faith, sin, hope. It talks about a lot of subjects. However, as important as every verse in the Bible is, and the teaching and the concepts found in the Bible, I think it would be a sin, meaning miss the mark, to not look at all the scriptures or to ignore a couple of them because they may not fit into a concept that we may have currently. I think that would be missing the mark. And the job of a Christian, according to Paul, or he's saying this to Timothy, he says in Second Timothy chapter 2, he said, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly... Handles the word of truth. I think one of the versions says rightly dividing the word of truth. So correctly handling the word of God and rightly dividing the word of God. Now, I want to say this. I have no doubt in my mind, because I've been preaching for over ten years, and I've had many, 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 many Bible studies and conversations, I have no doubt in my mind that the subject that I'm going to talk about today is controversial going to put it out there it's it's controversial among believers which makes it even more difficult for some there are people that disagree on pre-tribulation what pre-tribulation versus post-tribulation they disagree on the once saved always saved versus eternal security um, eternal fire to hell or does hell really exist uh, faith and works all of these areas are areas in doctrine. Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. All of these areas are areas that churches will literally split over, and they'll divide over, and they'll walk out on, and they won't come back because somebody said something they don't agree with. And here's my request this morning. Okay? This is going to be one of those sermons where it might be a little different. I don't know. I can tell you I woke up uh, at 7 a.m. this morning, and I had a sermon... That was ready, and I had to make a few notes, and then I woke up at 7 a.m. and I thought, "I, I need to preach on this instead." So it's 7:05 this morning. I grabbed my cup of coffee and I started typing and I started thinking and looking. And that's so. Just to be candid with you, that's the sermon this morning. It's been about uh, it's been prepared for about three hours, maybe maybe two. Okay. The request that I have though is that you write down notes you take scripture references. And you go home and you study what the word says. You take the scriptures that I'm going to reference, you write the verse down, you write the idea down, and you look at it, and after you've taken the time to study the scripture, and study the context of scripture, and read it for yourself, then come back to me, or call me, or text me, and say, Nate, can we go grab a cup of coffee and talk about this particular idea. You said something, I don't know if I would agree with it, I don't understand it, I, I, I think you're wrong, I think you're right, I want to get more in depth with it, whatever. But don't be the type that says, I don't agree, therefore, signara. I'm never coming back. Because when you look at Acts chapter 17, it says, Paul considered the Bereans of more noble character because they took the words of what he said and they thoroughly examined the Scripture to see if what Paul said was true. They didn't say, we're never coming back. What they said was, does this guy know what he's talking about? And they went to the Scripture. So that's my my plea this morning, is to not get worked up, but to go, huh, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense in light of my understanding of this. So this morning we're going to talk about clothing. Clothing. We all put it on. If you didn't, the cops would show up or Matt would arrest you. He'd take you to the funny farm. We're all in clothing. We've all put something on today to determine kind of how we want to look. And clothing seems to define who we are and how we want to be perceived by others. I've always gotten a chuckle out of our hunting our hunting clothes. We spend money on cam- camouflage. And I was telling somebody last night or two nights ago over dinner at the cabin, I said, you could wear a pink tutu and kill an elk if the wind is right. It wouldn't matter if you were camoed or not. You could be in a pink dress, a purple dress. You could be in a Greek god whatever. You could be in a <laughs> swim shorts. And you could kill an elk if the wind is right. That's just the way it is. But we define ourselves. i picture Brenda's like, another pair of pants? Like, why do you have, why do you need these hunting pants? And she's like, is it because Brian wears them, Brian Bray? You want to be like Brian Bray, don't you? I'm like, well, he's a good hunter, and maybe it has something to do with that he wears cooey pants. I don't know. But we we buy this stuff, and we put it on, and it kind of defines who we are. You see it in every every area of our lives. I mean, Dennis, you were at the steel mill for how long? Steel workers dress a certain way. Welders dress a certain way. Mechanics dress a certain way. Nurses dress a certain way. Every one of us defining who we are have something we put on to kind of define who we are and how we want other people to perceive us. Would you agree with that? Yeah? Okay. I think you should. You get the point. We can see from the clothing people wear who they are and who they want to be. Did you know it's illegal to impersonate a police officer? Matt, where are you? Did you know that was illegal? Yeah, I figured you did. So it, the, uh, it, the Colorado Revised Statute, is that what CRS stands for? Thank you, Stephanie, yes, okay. Colorado Revised Statute, 18-8-112. Impersonating a peace-slash-police officer is a felony in Colorado and is generally accompanied by other felony charges. A person commits the crime of impersonating a peace officer if, one, he falsely pretends to be a peace officer, two, performs an act in that pretended capacity. If convicted, this crime constitutes a class six felony and carries with it up to 18 months in jail and fines. The elements of this offense, we have uh, that goofy holiday Halloween coming up. The elements of this offense do not prohibit individuals attending Halloween parties dressed as police officers as long as they act and don't represent themselves as real police officers. So you can still dress up as a police officer. You just can't really act like a police officer. Or you can go to jail for 18 months and pay fines. So the clothing, it's, it's a big deal. It's, it's, it's a felony offense, if you class 6 felony offense. Now, this idea of clothing is found all throughout Scripture. Again, please take notes. If you just want to listen, that's fine, but put it on your phone under your notes tab and just look at these passages later. Clothing has started from the beginning, the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We know the story. Adam and Eve, their God has created them, and He's given them the garden to operate and, and work until, and it's wonderful, and then they were tempted, and they ate of the forbidden fruit, and then they... Eve ate it and then gave some to Adam who was right there with her and he took a bite and ate of it and then boom, they realized that they were nude. And so what did they do? They went and hid and they made some fig leaves and they sewed them together and they put fig leaves to cover their nakedness and their shame. That's what they did. And if you look a little bit later on in the passage, God's walking down uh, through the, the, it says the cool of the day. I have a note there that says, why did it say heat of the day? I'm just curious. But in the cool of the day, he's walking through the garden And he says, where are you? And he says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Hold on, I thought they just made fig leaves to cover themselves, and yet they still felt shame and still felt naked. That's another sermon topic altogether. I don't want to get on a segue here. However, afterwards, God said, this is what's going to happen to you, Adam. Eve, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you, serpent. And then it says, the man... I'm sorry, back in uh, verse 20, the Lord God, after, after the cursing, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So it's the first blood sacrifice that we have in scripture that I found. So God takes a sacrifice and he takes, he takes the garments of skin for Adam and his wife and, he's, and he clothed them. And then God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So that's the first story we have of actual clothing other than the fig leaves. That is the overall story that God had to clothe them because they tried to clothe themselves and it didn't work. The second one I want to look at is in Exodus. So after Exodus gets started, you know, you have Moses and he has the burning bush experience and he goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, let my people go. And they let him go after all of these plagues and they crossed the Red Sea. And then in Exodus chapter 20... We have the Ten Commandments, and God gives the Ten Commandments, and He's setting up the rules, and He's setting up the, the laws for the nation of Israel. Remember, not a segue, but Israel is Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and they all become you know, tribes of Israel, sons of Jacob, and Israel is Jacob. So, another story, but Aaron is going to be in the high priesthood. So, it says in Exodus 28, remember, this, what's the subject we're talking about today? Clothing, thank you. I just got to make sure you're tracking because I didn't have a... I just want to make sure you're tracking here. So take your notes. Exodus 28. Have Aaron, verse 1, and uh, Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Okay, so here we have the priesthood that's about to be uh, discussed. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron, to give him dignity and honor. What gave Aaron the dignity and honor? His garments, his clothing. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. His clothing gave him dignity and honor. Are you agreeing with me at this point? I won't keep asking you. That. I just want to make sure that I'm not totally off base here. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. Does his garment have anything to do with him being able to serve God as priest? I hear yes. I hear yes. I see shaking of head no. Let's continue on. Okay? Okay. Because it reads a little ambiguous. It reads like maybe it's the consecration that allows him to serve me as a priest, and maybe it's the garments that allows Aaron to serve me as a priest. It's, it's ambiguous. So the next passage says, these are the garments they are to make. So is, what's he talking about now? He's talking about the garments, right? The clothing. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for, his, for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. The garments, the sacred garments, had something to do with Aaron being able to serve God as a priest. Exodus 28. Next passage. Clothing had something to do with the battle. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. David goes in there and he sees this Philistine that's standing on the hill for 40 days, I think it was. Was it 40 days that he gets up on the hill? Or 30 days he gets up on the hill. Night and day he gets up there and challenges the nation of Israel. And David finally comes up and says, Who is this dog that defiles the armies of God? Someone should go over there and cut off his head. And so they give him some clothing. And in 1 First, uh, First Samuel, I mean, a little far there, 1 Samuel 17 I think it is, It says, uh, Saul said to uh, David, "Go and the Lord be with you." Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. So, what is this? What is the clothing that David's wearing here signify? The warrior. It's battle, right? He's got the breastplate and he's got the shoes fitted and all that. I mean, he's got, the, he's got the, the garments that show that I'm a warrior and I'm getting ready to go to battle against Goliath. Now, obviously, the story is I can't use them, I, I can't move, and I won't be able to do my thing, so he takes them off and he goes and defeats Goliath. But if you look at a soldier, we talked about clothing, we talked about a firefighter and a hunter. Well, you have that with a, a police officer, you have that with a, a, a Navy SEAL, a, a, a special ops Army Ranger, I mean, we they have these clothing that they go to battle with, and they wear certain types of clothing. It's the same thing here. When they were going to battle, they wore certain types of clothing. In Genesis 37, we see a story backing up a few uh, books. Genesis 37, we have the story of Joseph. In Genesis 37, verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. It's interesting it starts off with Joseph, but this giving an account of Jacob, uh, who is Israel. Joseph, a young man of seventeen, was tending the flock with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Jacob, and Israel are the same One and the same. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph was given this robe by Jacob, and it signified to the rest of his brethren that he was more loved by his father. And you can remember when he went out there to Check on his brothers. They kidnapped him. They took his robe. They dipped it. And I think it was goat's milk or sheep or goat's blood or sheep's blood, and they tore it and they brought it back to Israel and said, "Look, we think some wild animals has gotten your son. He's dead." And Jacob goes into mourning. But actually, he went off to uh, be in Egypt. So we have this story of clothing again, where we have this robe that was given by Jacob to Joseph to signify that he was something special. Now all of these. All of these stories, and there's, there's plenty more in, in the Old Testament, but these particular stories here, all of them are referring to a physical covering. Something, something physical. And anybody who's heard me preach for any amount of time understand when I say what, what is physical is spiritual. What is physical in the Old Testament, there's a spiritual application in the New Testament. So does Jesus ever talk about clothing in the New Testament? Yes, He does. There's a beautiful story about the Kingdom of Heaven found in Matthew chapter 22. And these are the words of Jesus. And I've got to to come back and remind us that, again, take notes if you disagree where the sermon is going or heading or ends or began, whatever. Let's talk about it. Let's open up the Scriptures and let's get real Let's not say, well, I don't agree with that scripture, or this doesn't work, and so that can't be true. Let's not do that. I've never understood how people can be honest students of God's word and just ignore certain passages. And that includes people that have whatever belief you want to talk about, whatever church denomination. I don't care what church denomination you belong to. There are people in every church denomination that has the golden calf sitting right here, the hat rack in the, at the entryway, a certain type of piano, and we just worship the thing versus the creator. And it becomes so ingrained in our hearts and in our soul that we refuse to actually look at Scripture and say, what does the Scripture really say about this particular subject? Whether it's end times, whether it's the beginning, whether it's evolution, whether it's salvation, whether it's repentance and faith and hell, whatever the subject is, we have got to be humble and say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's look in the scriptures and be honest with it. Because we are not, if we are, if we are saying, no, I don't want that. We are not saying no to the person studying with us. We're saying no to the author of the Bible, the creator of the divine word. So in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, uh, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, and then this is Jesus speaking here. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business." The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 22, please. What does it say? Verse 1 and 2. Someone read it out loud. I don't care. I just want to make sure that I'm not just making up words here. Verse 1 and 2. Somebody read it. Thank you, Brooke. The kingdom of heaven is like. He's he's ready. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. This is the creator of the universe talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says, this is what it's like. And then after the king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, then he said to his servants in verse 8, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Isn't that wonderful? Everyone they could find, good and bad. It wasn't like, oh man, you don't have Kuyu hunting gear on. You can't come in. Oh man, you've got a really checkered past. You can't come in. He says he invited everyone, both good and bad, to come to the wedding that the king had prepared for his son. That is a good king. That's a good king. Then he says, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. We read the Sermon on the Mount and we take it serious. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you and you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But every now and again, we come across a passage in the words of Jesus that we don't want to deal with because it's hard. This is one of those passages. King said, Friend, how did you get in here without? wedding clothes. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. This is a real story that Jesus told, a parable he told to his followers. And for us to ignore the fact that the king, the creator, was addressing clothing here Is a is a problem. It's a problem, we don't deal with it. In the churches, in our own lives. Now, I want to tell you, I do believe in my heart of hearts, Jesus is not referring, or the king in this parable is not referring to the priestly garments found in Exodus 28. I believe Jesus is referring to a spiritual clothing. And I'm going to to show you how I come to that conclusion by flipping over one page to Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is dealing with some hypocrisy within the religious leaders of the day. And He gives a woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. I think it was seven times, six, seven times that we, we, we did this seven times. We did this study or did a sermon on it several months ago about Jesus and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. And he says here, the teachers, in verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide, and the tassels on their garments long. These are parts of clothing that belonged to the Pharisees, that belonged to the priesthood. They had the phylacteries and the tassels, and the phylacteries were boxes that they had, and it would show scriptures. In my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, please, my understanding is the phylacteries were boxes they would wear on their arm, and they would have the amount of scriptures that they rec- uh, they memorized written in them. And so... The, the bigger the phylactery, the more knowledge you had, the more Bible knowledge you had, or the more law knowledge you had. That's my understanding of it. It's been a while since I've studied the, the garb of the uh, Pharisees and the, the priests of the day back then. But the point being, Jesus is not speaking positively about the physical garments that the Pharisees are wearing. But one chapter back, when he's speaking to them, He's speaking very positively like wedding clothes are essential to be inside of this banquet. Wedding clothes are essential to be inside of this banquet. That's what Jesus is saying because the king says, you got to get out. You're going to get tossed out of here if you're not wearing the right wedding clothes. Now, when I spoke last week about the in Him passages and the in-Christ passages and the blessings that come in Christ. This is where we get to the part of the sermon that some of you are going to be like, preach it, Nate. Amen. Right on. Others are going to be like, eh, I don't know about that. And still others may say, this guy's off his rocker. And again, my appeal... Write the scripture down. Write it down. Go home and study it. And let's talk later. Let's talk right after. But let's talk about it. And the passage that I brought up, I brought up two passages last week about in Him, in Christ, and the multitude of blessings that are very, very specific to being in Christ or in Him. Very specific. And the two passages I brought up, I brought up earlier in the message. Romans chapter 6, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And the second one I brought up was Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, where he says, For you are all sons of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ Jesus. I brought here what's called a Greek interlinear Bible. And what it, from my study and my understanding is the Greek interlinear takes the earliest original writings and the most unbastardized paper and the, and the, and the, and the letters and the writings we have and it translates to, to the most literal Greek translation we can find. The most literal Greek translation. It's a word-for-word translation, which is hard to understand sometimes, but it's nice to see how when someone would have read it, you know, 500 years ago, this is the, what their brain would have done, and we have these translations that come in and put it in our vernacular, okay? So uh, it says here that here interlined with probably the most accurate Greek that we can arrive at is a literal English version. So that's the foreword for this Greek interlinear, you guys can... Uh, I'd say borrow it, but you guys can go buy one and it'll be good to have. Um, So, uh, In Galatians chapter 3. Now, I want to set up Galatians real quick. So in Galatians chapter 3, we we know anybody that's studied Galatians understands that Paul is dealing with what we're going to call Judaizers. And it's Paul dealing with legalists. You're a legalist. You're saying, you know, people have to wear Jesus cleats and, and sandals to be saved. Or you're saying that they have to take communion on Sunday morning and not Saturday night, you're a legalist. You're a legalist because you're saying people have to be baptized. You're a legalist because you say you can't have a a bathroom in the kitchen in the church, and you can't have a kitchen in the bathroom in the church either. You're a legalist because you're making laws that are outside of Scripture. And I want to clarify when I hear someone say you're a legalist, my mind goes to, Oh, am I forcing people to follow the Levitical law? Am I forcing people to follow the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy? Because when I hear legalists, I, I kind of, in, in from my, my prism of Scripture, I see Paul addressing legalism by saying, you are requiring people to obey the law of Moses. That's legalism. Now, we can be modern-day legalists by saying, you must wear button-up shirts in order to be saved. That would be modern-day legalism. But legalism in the term technical term is going to be people that are requiring people to obey the law of Moses. Paul is dealing with that at the church of Galatia. And he's making this argument, is it faith that saves you? Or is it observance of the law that saves you? Do you have to observe the Mosaic law to be saved? Or you, or you can be saved by faith? And Paul's argument is, guess what? It was 430 years after, before, the Mosaic Law that Abraham was considered righteous. It was four hundred. It was four four centuries over four centuries that Abraham was considered righteous before the law was even given, and that's the argument he's making to the church at Galatia. It's not through law and legalism that you're saved. It's through faith in Christ Jesus that you're saved. Amen. That's what the scriptures teach. They teach this stuff. And so people are like dealing with this in Galatia. And so he's he's telling them, he said, what then was the purpose of the law? Why did we have the law in the first place? And he says, oh, the law, it was the schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. It was the schoolmaster to lead you to Jesus. It was to show that you can't do it on your own. You can't do it without Christ. It's not possible. If it was possible, then Christ died in vain. That's the whole letter of the Galatian. That's the purpose of the Galatian letter. And so a few ways into chapter 3, when he says, before this faith came, before the, the faith in Christ came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may not be justified By faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law. That's what he's talking about. And then the next passage, he says, you, he's writing, it's important to understand who he's writing to, he's writing to the churches in Galatia. He's writing to plural, number of churches. He says, you are all sons of God. That's sons and daughters, by the way. That's a gender-neutral term. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The argument that Paul is making here, it says, when you were immersed into Christ... You put on Christ. Now if you want to argue that verse, you better come with some serious Greek that doesn't line up with any of the Greek commentators that I've read or any of the, the Greek studies I've done. It's very clear here that Paul says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've clothed, been clothed with Christ. That's what... Paul is telling them. And I wanted to read, I want to read this original, the way it's originally written in the Greek, he says, For all sons of God ye are, through the faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as into Christ ye were baptized, Christ ye put on. That is what the original Greek, how the original Greek reads. That you put on, you put on Christ when you're baptized. And my opinion is, we can talk about this, make it one of your notes, how do you know he's not talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit? Let's talk about that. Let's not just say, you're wrong! Let's talk about that. What is he talking about? Is he talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit? I believe he's talking about water baptism, water immersion. Because, I'm not going to get into that sermon because we'll be here until Tuesday if I keep talking. But I, I believe that's what Paul is referring to. Now, I want to read this real quick in... Um, has anybody ever seen my big, fat Greek wedding? Will you raise your hand? Gavin, raise it higher. You don't have to be ashamed. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I want to see it now, though. I look for a little YouTube clip of it. I'm like, I, bet, I, I think it looks good. But in, in the movie, I opened up my, this William Barclay uh, commentary. I have. In, in my wife's writing, it says, this description of baptism reminded me of a little reminding me a little of the scene in my big fat greek wedding when the boyfriend slash fiance becomes a member of what was it the greek orthodox church and that's what the that's what the sticky note says so i'm this morning i'm googling big fat greek wedding and i almost got caught in like time slipping away watching all these funny clips it's one of my weaknesses but i did i after 2 minutes i'm like this isn't the one i went back to it but this is what this is what this this gentleman here says about that scripture. As many of you, says Paul, who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there are two vivid pictures here. Baptism was a Jewish rite and custom. If a man wished to accept the Jewish faith, he had to do three things he had to be circumcised, to offer sacrifice, and to be baptized. Ceremonial washing to cleanse from defilement was very common in Jewish practice. See Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. The details of Jewish baptism were as follows. The man to be baptized cut his hair and his nails. He undressed completely. The baptismal bath must contain 40 sias, that is, two hogsheads of water. Every part of the body had to be touched with water. He made confession of his faith before three men who were known as the fathers of baptism. While still in the water, parts of the law were read to him. Words of encouragement were addressed to him, and benedictions were pronounced upon him. When he emerged, he was a member of the Jewish faith. It was through baptism that he entered into the Jewish faith. He was baptized into that faith. Read that again. It was through baptism that he entered into the Jewish faith. He was baptized into that faith. By Christian baptism, a man entered into Christ. The early Christians looked on baptism as something which really and truly produced a real union with Christ. It is, of course, to be noted that it is a missionary situation where men were coming from direct heathenism. Baptism was, for the most part, adult baptism, and the adult would necessarily have an experience a child could not have. But just as really as the Jewish convert was united with and received into the Jewish faith, the Christian convert was united with and entered into Christ. Romans 6, Colossians 3. Baptism was no mere outward form and ceremony. It was a real union with Christ. Paul goes on to say that they had put on Christ. There may be here a reference to a custom which certainly existed later, The candidate for baptism was clothed clothed in pure white robes, symbolic of the new life into which he had entered. Just as the initiate put on his new white robe, he put on Christ. His life was clothed with Christ. The result of all this is that in the church there is no difference between any of the members. They have all become sons of God. But it's interesting, he says, his life was clothed with Christ. We can argue about it. We can debate it. We can say, "Well, are you saying this? Are you saying that? Here's what I'm saying. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You have put on Christ. Now there's several, several passages throughout the New Testament that talks about putting on the new nature and and taking off the old nature and put, put on humility in one passage it says. But there's this concept of baptism that's found in Galatians That doesn't get talked about very often. Because people are scared of what somebody else might say. They are scared that it might offend other people. It's true. I've seen people skirt around it. I've got a friend who's dealing with it right now. And the preacher will not get up there and say, This is what it says. Because he wants to appeal to everyone. And I'll be honest with you. I want to appeal to one, and that's God. I do not... I do not live my life to make sure that these seats are filled because it gives me a sense of power. What gives me a sense of power is preaching the God of unity. Period. But if you have other ideas that conflict with Paul's teaching, that when someone is baptized, they are clothed with Christ, put on Christ, and united with Christ, and at that point, in Christ then let's talk. Let's just talk about it. Ask the question, well, how do you know he's not talking about a baptism of the Holy Spirit? How do you know that? Do you know that? Do you have an idea on that? Do you have an opinion on it? How do you know he's talking about water? How do you know he's talking about immersion and not sprinkling or pouring or a water balloon across the face? I mean, how do you know? Those are the things that I I believe need to be discussed if someone is wrestling in here. What does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Does it just mean that I can be in a catatonic state and go dunk in water? Or does repentance need to be part of the, the decision? Well, according to John, in John 1 and in Mark 1, Mark 1 4. John came baptizing and teaching a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance. Not a baptism, a baptism of repentance. Meaning someone is going before the Father and saying, I'm turning, I'm giving it to you. I'm not ignorant in thinking that everybody's going to want to do that. Because when you look back at Matthew 22, and this is the hard part that people deal with more than anything. It's the personal relationships for many are invited, but few are chosen. There will be people that deny obeying God. It will happen. It's been going on it's been going on since the creation of mankind. In fact, I think it started in Genesis one three. Will you guys pray with me and then we'll have a communion meditation. Who's, who's doing communion? Uh, Dennis? Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's pray and, and then Dennis will help prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your written word. Thank you for the ability to read, to reason, to study. Thank you for creating us in your image. Male and female, you created us in your image. Father, my only request uh, this morning in, in prayer and I hope I can get an amen from from everybody, is that if there are people wrestling in their hearts about the blessings that they can receive by receiving You and putting on You and being in union with You, Father, let this message be either a planting or a watering. Because we know that you give the increase and all we can do is plant and water, Father. But I pray for the increase.